Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. We come today to the end, as you're finding the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, we come to the end of the 12 days of Christmas. Officially, it was Friday, but for our purposes for Sunday, today is what's known as Epiphany. And it's an appropriate title because today we prepare for yet another revelation about this one born in Bethlehem. The reason why we continue to sing carols, the reason why the decorations are still up for this one last Sunday, is because there's one more gift to be received in the giving of this one named Jesus. It's an unexpected surprise that we will only get hints of for now until later our journey with Christ over the next few weeks and months takes us through a garden to a cross and ultimately beyond a tomb. As I said, this Sunday is known as Epiphany Sunday, and it tends to be, in many sectors of the Protestant church, forgotten. But this holy day marks the close of the celebration of Christmas, and it does so by reinforcing that what brings us to our knees in worship is not just the the birth of a miracle baby, but it is the manifestation of our Creator, our God in human flesh through Jesus Christ, His Son. In Western Christianity, among our Catholic and Anglican brethren, this epiphany will be acknowledged today through the visit of the Magi to the Christ child. The bell choir led us in that remembrance. Through these wise men, Christ revealed himself to the Gentiles. Now, in Eastern expressions of the faith, among our Greek and Russian Orthodox brothers and sisters, Jesus revealing himself as God's own son will be celebrated today. It will be heralded through his baptism by John. But this morning we are going to observe Epiphany in a different way. Returning to the Gospel of Mark, we will continue to follow Jesus as he reveals the good news of the kingdom of God. We're going to immerse ourselves this morning in a long passage, so brace yourselves, in two separate intertwined stories by Mark that offer us further insight into who Jesus is, why he came, and what he intends to do for us all. So with that introduction, let us hear from Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman who, had, who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet, you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. 
Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they had come to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put all, them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumv, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to not let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus is back in Gentile territory. As you heard in the start of this scripture on the other side of the lake, and as we heard, and it's important to picture this, a large crowd is gathered around him as he comes to the shore. I mean, he, even the minute he gets off the boat, they're just pressing around him. Where That's exactly what Mark says. Not, there's not just a large crowd, but he emphasizes that they're not only following him, but they're pressing around him. And in the midst of this crowd, we're zeroed in on a woman suffering, suffering in silence. This woman suffers, we're told, from continued bleeding. Biblical scholars believe this is probably a feminine issue, some, a menstrual problem of some kind. And to appreciate her, her situation even further than this, according to the purity laws of her people, of the Torah, she, because of this perpetual problem, is considered ritually unclean. The Torah states that all women during their time of the month is un, are unclean, but her cycle, as we hear, are hearing here, is endless. She has no relief whatsoever. And because she's considered unclean, Everything she touches, by implication, also becomes unclean. So as a result of her prolonged condition, she has never attended worship. She can't. She's not allowed. She can't participate in communal life. And if she were to walk into a room, people would back away. Because again, anything that she touches is unclean because she is unclean. So in addition to the chronic pain she's experiencing physically and socially, there's also other implications. She's incapable of bearing children. She's subject, because of this condition, to divorce. If she were to be married, if she is married, her husband has grounds to divorce her. But this woman is not just suffering from her disease, Mark goes on to tell us. It gets worse. She's suffering from the attempted cures as well. She had spent, gone to many doctors. She had spent all she had, and Mark tells us that instead of getting better, she actually got worse. This woman, in essence, has lost everything. Her comfort, her money, her social position, her dignity, her sense of worth. She is functionally useless, isolated, abandoned. She is ritually dead. From a worldly, dare we even say it, common sense standpoint, this poor woman is hopeless. She has no reason 
for believing her situation, her condition, will ever change, will ever get better instead of worse. In fact, given what she's been through, she's likely to believe it could only get worse. Or maybe it can't get any worse. And yet this woman is narrowed in by Mark because this woman clings to hope. Hope against hope. A glimmer of possibility without, again, any justification or logical basis. In other words, she's engaging in what we might call today wishful thinking. Notice also that this woman heard about Jesus. She heard about Jesus. She'd actually never heard from Jesus himself, it appears. She sees, never have seen Jesus in person up until this moment. She's never listened to him teach, but she heard enough about Jesus to take a great risk. Remember, whatever she touches is unclean. She is violating the law. By touching Jesus. Jesus of all people. You know, given his popularity, given his prominence in the crowd. But she is taking a great risk to reach out and touch Jesus. But this woman is determined. That's the sense we get. This woman believes she will be healed. Mark tells us she believes she will be healed if she just touches Jesus. And not even Jesus. If she just touches his robe. However, by touching Jesus... This woman also believes, as I said, she will defile him and make Jesus unclean. So she doesn't just walk right up to him. She sneaks up behind Jesus. The crowd that's pressing in upon him gives her an opportunity to perhaps touch his robe, get out of there real quick, and that's it. We're all done. All good. And so you can imagine her in the midst of that crowd. I mean, you picture that crowd and just trying to get through it, wade through it. She just works her way in there and just flicks her finger across the wrinkles of his robe. Her touch seemingly polluting Jesus without any elaborate ritual. There are no magic words that happen here. There is, in fact, no action that takes place whatsoever. And yet suddenly, completely, absolutely, in that moment, she stops bleeding. This woman is cured. She's healed. And just like that, she attempts to sink back, you can picture it, into the anonymity of the crowd. But not so fast. Jesus realizes something has happened. Jesus realizes that power has gone out of him. And he looks around. We heard it. It's the, probably the, the only comical moment in this passage. He looks around at this throng of people that are just pulsating around him, surrounding him, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples... Don't miss this. The disciples oftentimes have a little bit of attitude, right? Disciples can be sarcastic. The disciples, and, and, and mind you, and this is important, in their sarcasm, in their, in their little bit of attitude, the disciples, we didn't read this, but what's just happened? The disciples, having just experienced Jesus speak a life-threatening tempest, this, this, they thought they were going to die as this storm came upon them into, on the sea. They just witnessed Jesus speak this life-threatening tempest into a dead calm. And they just came from witnessing Jesus make pigs fly. As he said, a torturous demon man possessed man free. A man who had been plaguing a town who was just possessed by a legion of demons. They, this is just what they came from. And yet when Jesus says, who touched me? The disciples think they're being funny or think they're pushing back when they go, are you serious? You see all these people that are around you and you're asking out loud who touched you? The disciples are clueless. They're no different from anybody else in the crowd. 
They're most likely speaking, and they often do for us in the Gospels. They're most likely speaking for everyone else. Can you imagine? It's not just the disciples, but the crowd gathering around him is like, everybody's touching you, man. What are you talking about? We can hear the sarcasm. We can hear, more importantly, that they just don't get it. And it's important to focus on this because maybe we still don't get it either. Jesus, in asking this question out loud, who touched me, isn't concerned that he's leaking. Jesus isn't asking this out loud because he's surprised that something happened. Think about it. Jesus already knows the answer to this question. This woman, despite her suffering, despite her past failures, despite her fear, despite probably her low opinion of herself, took a risk, a step of faith in touching Jesus. Jesus asks this question out loud because for Jesus, a connection has been made. But Jesus wants more than just momentary contact. So Jesus asks this question because Jesus is looking around for this woman. Christ is pushing this woman to step out. We imagine what everybody else is thinking when Jesus says out loud, who touched me? Can you imagine the woman who's trying to slink away when she hears Jesus say, who touched me? Like all eyes are upon her, though no one knows except for Jesus. Christ is pushing this woman to step out with greater faith and risk, to step beyond touch and run, to step beyond take a pill and feel better and move on. And this moment in time is so important because how many of us have settled for the quick fix, the skin-deep encounter with Jesus? We hear about Jesus. We know a little something about Jesus, which makes us dangerous. And when the going gets tough, when we exhaust all our other resources, we suddenly get down on our knees, we reach out our hands and seek Jesus looking for a miracle. Some of us have gotten that miracle. Some of us have gotten that miracle. The cancer went into remission. We found ourselves physically pain-free. We got a new job. We reconciled that relationship. Some of us have gotten that miracle, but then we move on. Back out into the world, backing away from Jesus, back to doing things, back to living our lives on our own terms. I'm not rebuking this woman, not in the slightest, and Jesus never rebukes this woman. But what I'm saying in her reaction, what I'm pointing to is a pattern in our lives when it comes to Jesus. Notice that this woman has already been healed physically. Her bleeding stopped, and yet immediately at first she also believed, she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. But Jesus seeks her out because he has much more to offer her. Jesus pursues this woman in order to go more than just skin deep, but to offer her again something more, something beyond what had been her significant physical and relational discomfort. And so with fear and trembling, Mark tells us, this woman tells Jesus the whole truth. She confesses her life. We can imagine what that must have been like. No doubt she shares with Jesus in that moment what she's been through. The deeper pain, the lingering scars beyond the bleeding, the disruption, 
the corruption, the damage done to her identity, her sense of worth and purpose. Not all of us get that immediate miracle. Not everyone is healed physically. We know this. For some, the cancer hasn't gone into remission. It's actually spreading. We aren't. For some, for some of us aren't pain-free at all. In fact, the pain is getting worse. For some of us, we still haven't found a job. For some of us, we couldn't work things out. And our marriage ended in divorce or our relationship is still broken, strained. For some of us, because of that lack of healing in the here and now, we've begun to doubt our faith in Jesus. Maybe we've walked away from Jesus altogether. Maybe you know people in your mind right now that that description applies. Beloved, something we need to understand, especially in passages like this, is healing on this side of eternity. Healing on this side of eternity is not a sign of our faithfulness. It's not a sign that we've proven to have enough faith that we've been more faithful than someone else. Healing on this side of eternity is an affirmation of the reality of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, of the reconciliation, the newness of life without sickness and death, mourning or pain that we'll all experience one day. It's a sign of the deeper healing, the remaking and the transformation Jesus is doing in our lives and in our world here and now that isn't easily seen all the time, that isn't easily measured, that isn't easily understood. Again, this woman has already been healed physically. Her bleeding stopped, and immediately she believed at first. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. But notice what Jesus says to her once she comes forward and engages the whole truth. He says, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Well, she's already free from her suffering. Jesus must not be talking just about what just happened. Be freed from all your suffering. Be freed from the things that go beyond the physical, that go much deeper. Go in peace, he says to her, rather than slinking away anonymously in fear. Be freed from your greater suffering, not just your bodily pain. Experience the deeper healing of your soul. Realize and receive your true identity, that you are seen, that you matter that you have value, that you have worth, and it has nothing to do with what others say about you. It has nothing to do with whatever happens to your body. It has nothing to do with whatever goes on in your life. A woman that no one else will touch, a woman that no one else notices, a person that everyone else stays away from, Jesus notices. Jesus seeks out. Jesus invites into his presence. Jesus, did you catch this? Calls daughter. Daughter. The fear and trembling of this woman described by Mark is not expressing she is afraid as much as she is in profound awe. The kind of awe that humbles and yet exalts you, lifts you up. Have you ever experienced that kind of awe that awe that makes you fear and tremble because you're just not, you don't believe you're worthy. You don't perceive it's possible. How can this be? That is what's happening to this woman, this kind of awe when you realize you're receiving more than you expected, more than you could have anticipated or hoped for. 
the awe of experiencing not just physical healing, but total and complete salvation. When you begin to realize that what is beginning to fracture and crack is the suffering, the suffering that's so deep that you become so used to that you feel like is a part of you that you never thought you could ever get away from. When you feel that suffering being broken open, like again, a stone being rolled away from a tomb. My friends, again, any healing we experience on this side of eternity is not a sign of our faithfulness. What it is a, a sign of, of our Father's faithfulness. Not just in a present moment, but in everything that God promises. That one day, we will all be completely healed. We will all be made whole. We will all be fully restored at our resurrection. We may not all receive physical healing here and now, but in the meantime, we can all receive the gift of salvation. We can experience the deeper healing, the greater work of being changed, of being set free by Jesus, of discovering our true, affirming, and lasting identity in Christ. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? Or is your identity still based on where you've been? What you've been through, what you think you've done, or what you think you haven't done, or what others say about you. That is not who you are. Do you know who you are in Christ? Because many of us, again, I say, have prayed the prayer, have tried to touch the robe, get that miracle, and then we back away. And Jesus has so much more to offer you. Not just a band-aid, but a transformation of how you see yourself how you understand who you are. Because Jesus also is not, offers us not only that, but also gives us the ability to realize our clear, secure, and empowering purpose as we follow him. How many of us are still wondering what our life's all about? How many of us are wondering what our time on this earth is for? How many of us are still chasing after our purpose? And if you're, you know, you're, you're, whether you're young and you think your purpose is in what you're going to build and create, the life you're going to make for yourself, good luck with that. Or whether you're on the other side and you've retired and now you go, what's it all about? What did I do? What am I? Who am I? Your purpose is not on either end of that spectrum. It's not in all the things you will build and create and amass because they're gonna go away. And in your retirement, when you get there, when you're in the nearer, closer to the years, you're gonna meet Jesus than you were before. Your purpose has not been defined by all that stuff that you did, you accomplished. So all of a sudden when you feel like you don't matter, you're not relevant, you're not significant, nobody cares, nobody remembers, that's not your purpose. And some of us need to hear that at the start of life because we need to be building a life differently. We need to understand our purpose is different. And our purpose is to be, through the transformation of knowing who we are in Christ, to change how other people see themselves. We are to be agents of healing. We are to be agents of generosity and compassion. That's what we build our life on. That's the treasures of heaven. And for those of us who've retired, it ain't over till it's over. And if you're retired and going, what do I got? You got time. You still got breath. Stop lamenting what was or what wasn't. Stop lamenting what you feel like is eroding away and take the breath that you have. Take the time that you're given. Take what God has made of you and is making of you and share it. Share it. Share it. 
And you too. It's never too late. We're talking about eternity. Treasures of heaven don't expire. This woman shifts from a superstitious view, just a touch, rub off, power, bodily healing. This woman shifts, don't miss this, to a long-term, ongoing, life-transforming relationship with Jesus. This woman is turned from a physically healthy woman, the moment that she touches that robe, into a spiritually healthy disciple. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Not touching me, but engaging me, pursuing me, following me. Your faith has healed you. Jesus says, be freed from your suffering. Following Jesus, being in a relationship with Jesus is what frees us. And understand, it takes time. It's not a quick fix. It takes a lifetime. And it's not just about hearing about Jesus. It's not just about a touch from Jesus. It's a relationship with Jesus that is the freedom, that is the healing. My friends, when Jesus is nothing more than a talisman, a good luck charm, that we only take out to rub when we get into a jam, Jesus isn't transforming us. Jesus isn't changing how we think. Jesus isn't changing how we see, how we hear, how we speak, how we engage our lives and this world. Because it's the relationship with Jesus that is inevitably broadens our mindset. It's the relationship with Jesus that opens, that wide our hearts. It's the relationship with Jesus that gives us a new vocabulary. It's the relationship with Jesus that prompts us to act in ways that take us beyond our comfort zones. It's the relationship with Jesus that pushes us beyond what we expect or believe on our own. It's the relationship with Jesus that pushes us to hope against hope. And that brings us to the second encounter that Mark shares with us here. And actually, if you were paying attention, it's the first encounter, the one that's sandwiched between this woman's story. I deliberately skipped over it so we could better appreciate the invitation and challenge of this encounter with Jesus. So our focus shifts, right? From the story of a woman who suffered for 12 years to a little girl, 12 years of age, who is dying. Her desperate situation comes to Jesus' attention thanks to her father, Jairus. Jairus, as we're told, is a religious leader. He's the ruler in the synagogue, which means he has a position of authority and standing. He is a man of great devotion to God. He is morally respectable. He is a figure of wealth and social status. And what stands out here is Jairus, as a religious leader, his engagement with Jesus, it stands in strong contrast to most of the other religious leaders we encounter in the Gospels. Notice he doesn't send a servant but waiting on the shore, he's on the shore, Jesus, Jairus addresses Jesus directly. He humbles himself and bows down before this Galilean carpenter. He's willing to do anything, like any father would. He's willing to beg, borrow, steal. He's willing to risk insult and ridicule. He's willing to give up his reputation. A powerful man, used to being asked for favors from his constituency, becomes a humble father pleading a favor for his daughter. For the way Jarius describes his situation, his daughter is as good as dead. And yet Jarius perceives, like that woman, a glimmer of hope in Jesus. Please, he says, please, come, put your hands on her, and she will be healed and live. But time is running out. 
The delay in Jesus' prolonged encounter with this woman leads to Jairus' worst fear being realized as word comes in the midst of all that that his daughter has died. I love this. Jesus, however, ignores the messenger and says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. In essence, Jesus says, Trust me. Whoa, hold on. I mean, this is, again, these are, these are stories we have to put ourselves in. Hold on a second. Let's, let's think this through. Put yourself in this story. Jarius, a reputable and influential man, comes to summon Jesus. He takes a risk. He clearly relates the urgency of the situation and acts in faith. And yet Jesus stops along the way. Mind you, Jesus didn't need to, per se. He stops for a chronic condition, Hard times, but it's a chronic condition. He stops for a healing that's already done while an acute condition remains untreated, unresolved. The little girl's condition is acute. She's dying. The woman's condition, while bad, is chronic. I mean, let's put it this way, people. If both cases were in the ER for us today, we all know who we believe should be treated first. We would all agree on where the priority ought to be given. Um, can we come back to this later, Jesus? Because we've got this situation right here. But Jesus turns to Jairus when he's just gotten word, she's done. And says, oh, no, don't be afraid. Just believe. Note the obstacle for Jairus is not rational doubt. It's faint-heartedness. Jairus had enough faith that he was not afraid to walk right up to Jesus, fall at his feet, risk his reputation, and plead for his daughter he loved. When the word comes to Jairus that his child is dead, so does the end of all hope. Why bother the teacher anymore? Someone actually says it out loud. Your daughter's dead. Let's go. Why are we wasting any more time with this guy? Why bother is not just a question. Why bother is an orientation. It's the orientation of hopelessness. Jarius' situation is hopeless. Anyone can see that. Anyone can see that. It's the logical, rational, reasonable conclusion. And that's why by the time Jarius does get home, the funeral rites have already begun. The professionally hired mourners are there. They're weeping, they're wailing, they're beating their chests. That's why Jesus, when Jesus says in the midst of all this, she's not dead, she's sleeping. Everyone laughs out loud. Can you imagine that moment? Can you imagine the people who are like, can you get the nerve on this guy? Really? She's sleeping? They laugh out loud. And so would we. We all know a dead body when we see one. When the child was sick, Jesus could heal her. Everyone believed that. Sure. But now, as Jesus reaches out and touches a corpse, by the way, the most unclean of all actions, according to the Torah, he turns to us and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. She's not dead. She's asleep. Jesus invites us not to fear, but to believe in a redefinition of our reality. Jesus challenges us to have hope against hope, to embrace a strength, a confidence, a conviction born not of what we think is reasonable, not of what we understand to be logical or what we perceive to be possible. And that's often how we engage Jesus, right? Jesus, I will believe in you 
I will believe in what you can do in my life and in this world if it's reasonable. I will believe in you if it's logical. I will believe in you if I can perceive it's possible. You have got my belief, Jesus. But the death, the greatest, the most impossible, the universally insurmountable enemy we all face, the death is nothing but sleep to Jesus. The death is a temporary obstacle. Like Jarius, the true answer to the invitation and challenge comes not when we are confident in our own beliefs. The true challenge and invitation comes when our hearts begin to fail and we can only lean on our belief in Jesus. When we can't lean on logic, when we can't lean on reason, when we can't lean on possibility, but we can only lean on Jesus. Hear this, church. There is a huge difference between coming to Jesus to affirm what we already believe. There's a huge difference between that and Jesus calling us to affirm what we find unbelievable. Embracing what Christ declares to be true. What he declares to be possible. So let us reflect. Let us ask ourselves how much of our relationship with Jesus is built on our own perception of Christ affirming what we already believe? It's a deep question. How much of our relationship with Jesus is built on our perception of Christ affirming what we already believe? That our, our faith in Jesus is based on Christ affirming the convictions we already hold morally, ethically, politically, intellectually, Versus how much of our relationship with Jesus is being built on Christ. How much of our relationship with Jesus is being built on Christ challenging and reshaping our perceptions of what is right. Reshaping our perceptions of what is true. Reshaping our perceptions of what is good. Reshaping our perceptions of what is possible. In quite the contrast to the sob fest the weeping, wailing, and hand-wringing going on around him, Jesus speaks lovingly simple words in a calm, tender voice. He says, Talitha, or little girl, or little lamb, or little one. In essence, he would say in our language, honey, honey. He uses a parent's pet name for their child as he addresses Jairus' daughter. Honey, get up, he says. And that get up actually better translates into it's time to get up. As if he's waking her up in the morning. I just This has got nothing to do with anything other than this just gets me and I want to share it. Someday, we will be awakened that way by the sound of Jesus' voice. Someday, we will hear, honey, it's time to get up. And much to Jairus' surprise and ours, a dead girl rises and walks around the room. And just like that, surprisingly, the professional mourners are seemingly out of a job. Everyone stands amazed by what they see, but their amazement is nothing more than an emotional reaction. It's not the same thing as belief. It's not the same thing as a change of the will. Beloved, do we believe in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Are our beliefs fed and driven more by our fears of what is likely to happen? Are we amazed? Faith should amaze us. Are we amazed? Do we profess faith in what Jesus has done for us, but do we at the same time lack the will and struggle to have faith in what Jesus can and will still do in our lives? 
Some of us are like, you know, divided people. You get us talking about the ways we believe that Jesus has blessed us, and we'll go crazy. But then we'll get to the stuff that Jesus hasn't done for us yet, and we'll start to go, well, They're not separate. (laughs) They're related to each other. That's why we count our blessings. Because we realize we're blessed. And out of that blessing, we realize that it's not that God is, you know, skittish. It's not that God is, you know, schizophrenic. Well, yes, no. God seeks to bless us. The blessings we see are our assurance in the blessings that we don't see. That God is working for our good. That it's not God's working for some of our good, but a lot of it's bad. No, God is working for our good. And so we focus on that good in the midst of the good that we cannot see. Both these stories emphasize touch. Did you notice that? Just a touch is all it takes, true. But both these stories also emphasize that just a touch is not what Jesus came for. The epiphany is this. That the birth of Jesus, the Word made flesh, God making contact with us, is not the end. It is only the beginning of our journey. What we learn from the woman who encountered Jesus is Jesus doesn't just want us to hear about him. Jesus wants us to hear from him. God didn't come all the way down in Jesus Christ for us to have a passing relationship with him. God came all the way down. The Lord gave us his life and his spirit so that we would abide and rely. We would walk and talk with Jesus every day, every moment of our lives. Jesus doesn't just want to cure the symptoms in our lives. Jesus purposes to heal the whole of our lives. Jesus comes to bring us more than temporary, temporal relief. Relief that enables us just to make it through this life. Jesus comes to give us full, abundant, and everlasting life. A quality, a peace, an assurance of life that goes the distance, that goes beyond death, that carries us beyond death. Beloved, Jesus looks for us. Jesus notices us in the crowd even when we are hiding. You may be hiding from Jesus right now, but you're only hiding from yourself. Because Jesus sees you. Jesus is saying, who touched me? And while other people may be going, what the heck are you talking about? There's lots of people touching you. He's not talking to them. He's talking to you. Jesus doesn't just want us to make contact with him. And some of us, that's it. That's, we made contact with Jesus. It's like we tag Jesus every so often. Jesus desires us to follow him, to embrace and be changed for the better into the best we can be by all the love and truth he wants to pour into our lives. Why deny yourself that? Why hold back from that? And what we learn from the story of Jairus is part of that relationship with Jesus that Jesus desires. This process, by the way, we call discipleship. Part of this process, this relationship, is learning patience and trust. And we learn patience and trust by depending on Jesus. And here's the thing, and there's no way of getting around it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, because it's right here. Biblically, God's sense of timing almost never coincides with our own. Never. From the outside perspective, be it Jairus, be it his friends, his, the woman in this story, the disciples, Jesus' timing will always look on the outside bad. It'll look like bad timing. It'll feel wrong. It'll seem crazy. Jesus' timing we will not get. Why bother with him? We'll laugh out loud. We'll say, why isn't God coming through? Why the delay? How much longer? If God really were God, he would do this now. 
But waiting on the Lord, which the Bible calls us to again and again, waiting on the Lord is not God saying, wait for me until I'm good and ready. That's not what waiting on the Lord means biblically. God saying, hey, wait for me until I'm good and ready. Waiting on the Lord, waiting with Jesus, is God saying, wait for me because I love you and I know what I'm doing. There's a difference. I love you and I know what I'm doing. But the rub, and I ain't telling anybody anything they don't know, most of us are not inclined to wait. We're not inclined to trust. This is our daily frustration, waiting. And in that frustration, some of us even get defiant in our waiting. And that defiant creeps out and we refuse to wait when we finally say something like this, don't I know what's best for my life? Don't I know? God, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to make it happen. And more and more we live in a world where we can manipulate anything to get what we want. We don't have to wait if we don't want to. That is the, I don't know if you, that's the, when we, that word progress, and there's a lot of positive things about progress, but progress is another word for you don't have to wait. And many of us, that's why we love progress, because I don't have to wait anymore. We don't have to wait anymore if we don't want to. We can make our own luck, right? We can create our own solutions. But that doesn't always mean they're the right ones, the best ones. Like the hemorrhaging woman, Sometimes the other cures make things worse. In my own encounter with others, <laughs> why not? In my own life, there have been times when decisions have seemed so final, so obviously final, that there is little need to pray about them. There have been times in my life, and I trust in yours, when it seemed that all hope was lost. Why, are, why am I bothering with God with this anymore? The pain of my immediate circumstances and the loss of close relationships can feel as if there's nothing left that's good in life. However, resistantly, <laughs> wrestling with God, what I've learned about being in relationship with Jesus, what I'm learning, <laughs> what I'm learning about living in dependency upon Christ is ultimately, it's not about my faith. It's not about what I believe. It's not about what I think is possible. It's not about what I think is logical, what I perceive as reasonable. It's about Jesus' faith. What Jesus believes. What Jesus declares to be true, real, and possible, even if I can't see it. Even if I don't get it. Following Jesus means that each day is new. And when I say new, it's not just new in the terms of a fresh start, you know, start over. Following Jesus means that each day is new in the sense that every day is a new opportunity to discover how much I don't know. To realize how much more I have to learn about myself. And to realize, even if it's only in little degrees how much Jesus is working both in and through not only me, but you. How Jesus is working in and through us. It's another opportunity to learn how Jesus is truly able to do more than we can ever imagine or hope for. And it's only when I understand that, it's only when, not just understand it, but posture myself that way, 
It's only when I approach each day not in fear. Do you get up afraid? It's only when I approach each day not in fear but with that faith, that expectancy, living hope against hope, learning to trust that Jesus will always give me more than I anticipated, more than I asked for, but always in ways that are unexpected. That my life, my perception, my relationships are different. And what I receive from Jesus is not always what I want or when I want it. And that is because grace is surprising, but beloved, grace is surprising. Grace is unscheduled. Otherwise, it's not grace. Jairus came thinking he would have to trust Jesus just enough to get home. Jairus came thinking, I just have to have enough hope to hold on that my daughter won't die before he got there. Jairus came for a cure, not for resurrection. And en route to his home, Jairus is suddenly asked to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing, to hope that death wasn't the last word in her life. The woman came for just a touch, I just, just to rub the lamp. I just need, to have a, need enough hope. I just need enough hope to get through the crowds unnoticed, to reach out and touch Jesus' clothing, and then get out of there unnoticed. But Jesus asks the woman to trust him with the whole truth, to hope in more than a physical cure, but to trust in the healing of a deeper spiritual brokenness. My friends, at a time when hope often means little more than wishful thinking, let us come with whatever faith we have and experience the epiphany of the hope we have in and through Christ, a hope against hope, a strength, a confidence, a conviction, a hope that is born not of what we think is reasonable, Not of what we understand to be logical, not of what we perceive to be possible, but a hope that is grounded not in the faith that we have in Jesus, but the faith that Jesus has in us. That is grounded in who Jesus reveals himself to be. That is grounded in what Jesus assures us he comes to accomplish for all the world. What's your need? What is it today? What's your need? What's your crisis today? What's your fear? What's your fear? Take it to Jesus. Don't just lift up your hands and touch Jesus. Pursue him, knowing that as you're pursuing him, he's pursuing you. He's looking. He's inviting you to follow him. Hear him. Don't just get what you need and get out of there. Hear him. Trust him when he tells you, don't be afraid. Just believe. Beloved, let us listen. Let us truly live in awe and dependence upon the invitation that Christ extends to us all, that invitation to go in peace and be freed from our suffering. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.